When we started this series in 1 Corinthians 13, and I call it a series only because we've done three messages in this section, because it deserved for us to slow down and talk about what true love is. Uh, but you guys know that we've taught all the way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll finish the book. But uh, we have slowed down to talk about what love really looks like. And I've come to the pulpit a few times and shared with you some old love songs from some bands that you may be familiar with. Uh, one of the ones I shared with you was from Foreigner, where they asked the question, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. And so as I was pondering and thinking about 1 Corinthians 13, I, I shared with you a, something that I had written. Some of you had asked for a copy of this. I'm going to read it to you again, and I will make copies available upon request. But here's what I wrote. It's called True Love, and it says, Teach me your love, Lord, show me the way. In times of confusion, distraction, and division, help me to stay. When I speak, may it resound from your courts above. When the cymbals crash, may they sound with your love. Help me lay down my pride, be willing to suffer loss. Teach me the ways of your cross. Teach me your patience, help me to wait. Your kindness so that others can feel great. Give me mountain-moving faith so that nothingness is not my fate. Help me lay down my pride, be willing to suffer loss. Teach me the ways of your cross. I don't need to show off envy or brag. There's no profit in it, just an empty bag. Teach me your love, Lord. Teach me humility. Help me to forgive. Help me not to rejoice in wrong. Be ready to give. Teach me to praise what is true and right. Help me to walk in your light. Teach me to never give up, to never lose faith. To always be hopeful, never lose heart. Show me the way. Help me lay down my pride, be willing to suffer loss. Teach me the ways of your cross. When I walk the final lap of life's trails, when it's all said and done, remind me that your love never well, I wrote that, and then I realized I was writing a prayer. Anybody ever have a realization of what you've done to yourself? Because you write something or you express something, and then you realize, what I just asked God to do was to teach me how to love. Oh my goodness, what did I do? <laughs> a little levity here. Because you guys know when you pray for patience, what does God do? He puts you in situations to be patient. And if you ask God to teach you how to love, guess what God's going to do? Oh my goodness, I realized it weeks later. So if you want a copy, just be ready because God is going to challenge you. Here's something I've realized. Loving the way that God wants me to love is not easy. <laughs> Oftentimes when I have couples come up and we're about to share the vows and I go through the body of a wedding ceremony, I'll say to them, marriage looks easy until you try it. It's kind of like eating with chopsticks or uh, twirling a baton. We look at it and we go, oh, that's easy. And then you try to eat with chopsticks. <laughs> right? Or you throw that thing up and get clunked on the head. Marriage is the same way. Not all of you are married. And some of the things that I'm going to talk about today apply to marriage, but they also apply to friendships, they also apply to church relationships, etc. But we need to be taught how to love, and there's a couple of things out of the gate that I've got 
that challenge me. Number one, God is love and I am flesh. I am dust. So right there is a disadvantage. God is holy and I am flawed. Amen? So for me to love the way that he's called me to love, I'm going to need some outside help and resources. And this is why I want to start in 1 John, and then I'm going to take you to a section of 1 Corinthians 13. We'll look at verses 4 through 7, but let's, let's look at 1 John 3 to begin with as we lay a foundation. And if you'd pray with me, Father, thank you for all the precious people who have come out today on this wonderful Lord's Day. Thank you for the beautiful weather. Thank you that despite what we may be going through, whether we're in a week of rejoicing or uh, tough times have hit us, wherever we may be, or maybe even somewhere in between, I pray that you would do a special, fresh work in each of our hearts, uh, showing us how to love, showing your love for us first and foremost, because that's what we need to understand, how much you love us, Lord. And then let our love be a response and really let it be... uh, Let it be something that flows out of your power, your dunamis power in our lives. So I pray that you'd bless each one of us, Lord, who are going to hear your word today. There's a lot of love does not, love does not do this and that. But first and foremost, Lord, we want to remember your great love for us. So I pray the foundation will be there. We'll know that it's your power that will give us the ability to love this way. And I pray that you would be pleased with what we do today. You would lead us by your Holy Spirit. You'd be glorified in your church. And all God's people said, in Jesus' name, amen. 1 John 3, 1 says, See, 1 John 3, 1, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. 1 John 3, 1. That we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, Now we are children of God, 1 John 3, 2, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you want to scratch down some notes foundationally, verse 1 is God's adopting love. He is your father. He's adopted you into his family. God's transforming love. We are children of God, and he's doing a work. And one of the works he's doing is to make us more into his image. And one of the things that we know about his image is that God is love. God is also holy. God is truth. But God is love. And then notice his purifying love. Everyone who has this hope fixed on God, the the love of God, the future that we have as we'll be resurrected in Christ's image, purifies himself. So God's love is purifying. Now flip over to chapter 4. Check out, um, well, actually uh, in chapter 3, this is another verse that we shared. We know love, 1 John 3, 16, by this, or this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, 1 John 3, 16, and we, here's our response, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren or for one another. John then goes into an example of someone who's in need. And we can't close our heart in verse 17 of chapter 3 against that person. If we do, the question is, how does the love of God abide in a person who can't even reach out to somebody else? And then over to chapter 4, look at verse 16. 
We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. 1 John 4, 16. God is love, and the one who abides in love, that's a key, we have to abide in it, abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not, notice, perfected in love. That tells me that we have, there's a work that needs to be done, a perfecting work in my life, in your life, where God is trying to perfect me more and more in his love, showing me how to love, putting me in positions where it's inconvenient or I'm tested, and I have to be patient and kind. This is how we grow. It says we love because, 1 John 4, 19, because what? He first loved us. This is the motivation for our love. He loved us first. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment, not suggestion, commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should Love his brother also. Back to 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I would imagine that John's saying this because love in the early church, just like today, was an issue. It's a challenge to love the way that we're called to love. Anybody? Would you agree? It, it can be inconvenient. It, it can test you to the core because the kind of love the Bible's talking about is unconditional love. I've been quoting a little bit from the love dare. It's a 40-day challenge uh, written by a couple of brothers who have done some movies in Hollywood, the Kendrick brothers. And it's a 40-day challenge to just love somebody, maybe, probably in this case your spouse, and just love them unconditionally. And in some cases, you might not even tell them that you're doing the love dare. And you do 40 days basically around 1 Corinthians 13, and you just love them. And at day three, your spouse will probably say, what in the world has happened to you, Right? Because you're showing them patience and kindness and so forth. And every day you have a challenge of something to do. And the point of the 40-day love dare is that you love somebody else unconditionally despite what you get back. If I were to ask you right now, for those of you who are married, why do you love your spouse? I think many of you, if not most of you, would say, because she's pretty. Because she is a good cook, because she does this, or she loves me well. And if I flipped it around, if I asked you ladies, why do you love your husband? Well, because he's handsome. That's the first thing that you'd say, right? And, and then, you know, he's strong, and he takes care of me, and he earns money for the family, and you, whatever you might say. But did you hear those answers? Those answers are good answers, but what are they? They're performance answers. Because she's pretty. Because he works hard. Because they, see, that's a doing love. It, that, that's, that, the world's love is a performance love. You got it? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You perform well, I'll give you this. The Bible says this. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved you before you were lovable. And he still loves you on the days when you're cranky and irritable 
and you have a bad hair week, right? He still loves us. That's the amazing thing about God's love. God's love is not performance-based. This is what agape love is. It's a decision of the will no matter what. You see, if you can fall out of love, if you can say these words, and I know that this is common, and this is a lot of what the culture says, I, don't I fell out of love for that person. Look, if you've been married for a number of years, you've probably fallen out of love hundreds of times and fallen back in love hundreds of times. Can I get a witness? Some of you couples who've been married a long time, you don't want to admit it. Don't raise your hand because, what? You did what? I, I feel you. But here, here we go. Right? The feelings ebb and flow. And here's what the book said. I'm stealing this from the book. The book said, if you could fall out of love, then did you ever unconditionally love that person? Because if you fell out of love, you might say, well, it's because they no longer do this, or I no longer feel this, or this isn't happening anymore. But do you see? That's all performance-based. Everybody think about it for a second. The word unconditional means what? Without, <laughs> I know it's painful, but here it is, without conditions. You mean like no conditions? Isn't there some fine print somewhere? Some small type? Some, some, some escape hatches somewhere? No, it's unconditional. Think about the word. Sometimes we say words and we don't really mean, think about what they really mean. The depth of what they mean is that when you went to the altar, you said in sickness and in health to love and to cherish the good times and the bad times, as long as we both shall live. That's what you said. You said, and I know at the altar it's exciting and you're in love and the goo goo you could never do anything wrong. And then, and then you move in together and it's the couple of days after the wedding night and whoa. That's how they look in the morning? <laughs> she burnt the toast? Toast? You just have to put it on number four and it's perfect. How could that happen? You see, then life comes your way. And then you have to decide if you're going to love the way God's called you to love. I wonder if some of you have decided. The Bible says we know that we passed out of death into life because we love God's people. 1 John 3.14 We know that we're believers because we have this love in us. Now, I'm not telling you that this love is easy. And I'm not telling you that it's just a snap of your fingers away from you and it's just, it's something that's going to make you desperately fall at the foot of the cross probably every single day when you think about its implications. Would you agree? It's going gonna, it's gonna to find you on your face, crying out to God to give me the resources to love this way. My love is a response to God's love. And here's the good news. And the resources to love this way come from God. You don't have to do it alone. And some of you have been failing because you've been trying to do it in your own power. And if you try to love this way without God's help, you're in trouble. 
Because the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love. And we, many of us have memorized those fruits of gentleness and kindness and patience and all those other ones, but the trunk of the tree is love. The fruit of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, is love. Romans 5.5 5 says God has poured out His love in us or through us, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's been shed abroad in our hearts. We have a power source to love this way. In fact, I would tell you that one of the key characteristics of walking in the Spirit that manifests in your life is love. Paul's been correcting the Corinthian church, and he's been saying to them, you guys think it's the gift of tongues. You think it's prophecy. You think it's this or that. I have to tell you that if you had mountain-moving faith, if you gave your body to be martyred or burned, if you, had, uh, you gave all your possessions to feed the poor, but you had not love, you are nothing. Nothing. It's not the gifts. The gifts are a blessing, no doubt, but the gifts without love, they mean nothing. And so Paul is now going to give us eight negative descriptions of love, what love is not. We've already learned in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, that love is patient and love is kind. I reminded you that those are uh, things that God has uh, been to us, attributes of God, if you will. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient Love is kind. And now we get into the is-nots. Love is not, take a look with me, love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. Now, it's certainly true that there is a right kind of jealousy. In fact, the Bible does say that God is a jealous God. He's jealous for our hearts. He's jealous in the right and best sense. And if you were married and your spouse cheated with on, on you with someone, you should be jealous. That's a healthy jealousy. That's a reasonable jealousy. That's a biblical jealousy. What's not biblical is to be uh, a person that is constantly snooping around and filled with distrust. Now, I'm saying all things being equal. I know some of you have been hurt and wounded, and you carry some of those things into your relationship, but all things being equal, let's just talk here in terms of the word of god the word of god says don't be jealous love is not jealous you've got to give a certain level of freedom to you, the person that you are supposed to love the most if you are a wet blanket on them if you never give them any freedom look if you're married please have some friends outside your marriage you need to have some friendships with other people. And I'm talking about if you're a guy, go out and do a few things with your buddies. If you're a gal, go out and do some things with your girlfriends. You'll love each other even more when you get back from shopping. Right? You don't have to play golf with your spouse. You can if you want to. <laughs> How many of you saw that uh, Everybody Loves Raymond episode when they played golf together? And it was like she was trying to do something that he enjoyed, and they went out there, and she made her first putt, and he missed, and it was a disaster! All these best things we have. Yeah, we could just do this together. Well, some things are fun to do together, but other things, you may want to do them separately. That's okay. 
It could be healthy for your relationship. Love is not jealous. If you have the NIV, it says, love does not envy. Love and jealousy are mutually exclusive. Jealousy literally means to burn with intense fire. Where one is, the other cannot be. Shakespeare called jealousy the green sickness. It's also been called the enemy of honor and the sorrow of fools. Jesus referred to it as the evil eye. Matthew 20, 15, King James Version. The verb is ordinarily used by Paul in a positive sense, but its cognate adjective appears in uh, chapter 3, verse 3, for strife and rivalry. Love is free from envy. Love doesn't have to prove something to someone. When we are jealous and envious, it's because we can't stand being upstaged by somebody else. Love doesn't act that way. Love can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We know that the book of James says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, James 3.16, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is pure and peaceable, gentle and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. Envy is no small sin. It, because of it, Cain murdered Abel. Joseph was sold into slavery. And Jesus was crucified. Pilate knew it was because of envy that the religious leaders turned Jesus over to them, to the Romans. Pilate knew it. He knew that they were jealous. He knew that the religious leaders were afraid that they would lose their place and their nation. And it drove them to crucify the Messiah. That's how ugly envy can be. Jealousy. It can make us do all kinds of silly things. More damage is done due to jealousy than we could possibly chronicle in one message. It breeds distrust, but love will cheerlead and applaud. Love is not going to be silly, of course, but love will give a level of freedom to others. 1 Peter uh, 2.1 says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Second one in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, is love does not brag. Or NIV, love does not boast. New King James, love does not parade itself. This is a rare word in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. And it means to behave as a braggart or literally to be a windbag. The old windbag. Some people we've described as being filled with a whole lot of hot air. Brag, 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 brag. Buzz, 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 buzz. Oh, yeah, man, me and then I, me and I, I did, oh, I did. Yeah, me, 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 me. If you've ever seen the comedian Brian Regan, he describes being at a party with someone he describes as the me monster. And somebody can be telling a story about something that they did or experienced, and the me monster has to upstage them. Oh, you did that, but I, and the me, and me, and me! <laughs> That's how Brian Regan puts it. And if you've ever been in that situation, 
you finally realize it doesn't matter what you say around this person, they're going to have one better story than you. And finally, he tells of an extreme example where there's a guy at a dinner party who's actually walked on the moon. (laughs) And he lets everybody tell their stories, and then he waits, takes a little sip of his drink, and says, oh yeah? Well, I walked on the moon. Everybody has to be quiet after that. (laughs) The stage is yours, moonwalker. This is what a braggart has to do. He has to make sure that he is center stage. To brag is to call inordinate attention to oneself. The problem with windbags is that they eventually pop and make a loud noise. Amen? Love does not have to say, look at me. Love does not have to parade its accomplishments. C.S. Lewis called bragging the utmost evil. It's the epitome of pride, which is the root of all sins. Bragging puts ourselves first. Everyone else, including God, must therefore be second or less important than us. It's impossible to build others up when you're so focused on yourself. So love does not brag. Oh, these are hard, aren't they? Let's keep going. Love is not, end of verse 4, arrogant, or it is not proud. The New King James says love is not puffed up. It has the overtones of arrogance. Bragging and arrogance are all signs of insecurity. I have to make sure that others know what I've accomplished, what I do. I have to make sure to divert attention to myself. It is a sign of being insecure. And some of us battle that. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. He gives us grace when we desire to walk in humility, even though we could say something in that moment. We could upstage the other person. We could say, oh yeah, let me tell you something. Love says, I'm not going to go there. I don't need to go there. God knows. Love, verse 5, does not act unbecomingly. This word means to behave in a shameful or disgraceful way. It could be rendered, love does not behave indecently, and it has, says one writer, sexual overtones. Like the man who was sleeping with his father's wife in chapter 5, or women who were dishonoring their husbands in chapter 11 by dressing immodestly. Love does not act unbecomingly. If you have an NIV, it says love is not rude. Love will wait for others. Love will honor God's order and design. When someone is rude, you can't help but thinking, what's their problem? And when you're rude to someone, you can't help but thinking the same thing. (laughs) What's their problem? I was rude to them, but it's because... And we fill in the blank, right? It's never our problem. See, we have a right to be rude, others we don't. To be rude is to act in an unbecoming, embarrassing, and disrespectful way. A foul mouth, poor poor manners, inappropriate jokes at another's expense, and sarcastic quips. I'm reading from the love, dear. When you are on the receiving end of rudeness, nobody likes it. It makes you feel uncomfortable and small. 
Love does just the opposite. It desires to make others feel special and built up. It is a pain to be with a rude person and a pleasure to be with someone who loves you and behaves accordingly. Love motivates giving our best, whether it's our speech, our manners, or our demeanor. If we want someone close to us to stop being rude or doing things that bother us, perhaps we should start with ceasing to do the things that bother them. William Barclay writes, Love does not behave gracelessly. It is well with a man who is gracious, Psalm 112, verse 5. Love is gracious. It's not rude. If you're in the habit of embarrassing your spouse in mixed company, telling off-colored jokes, so that someone feels small in that room, you haven't accomplished anything but acted like a fool. And I know sometimes, you know, we can get in conversations with some of our buddies and Sarcasm, you know, some of us got an A-plus in the sarcasm class, right? And I can be sarcastic with the best of them. I spend my life, you know, as a wordsmith and uh, how to present things and stuff. I could go down that path, and sometimes I do, <laughs> admittedly. And, you know, in some of those situations, it's a back and forth, but I think we know when we've crossed the line. We usually know when we've crossed the line when the other person gets quiet. Oops. And then we have to try to repair what we said. See, even when we're joking, there's a little truth in our jokes, right? And it can hurt somebody deeply. We have to be careful. It's gotten really quiet in this room. I knew, I was thinking about not coming to church today, and I'm, I'm speaking for myself now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Love does not seek its own. It doesn't seek its own advantage. The one says, love does not insist on its way, ESV, new, revised. Another says, it doesn't seek its own advantage, NJB. Still another, it does not claim its own right. Even though, says one writer, their emphases differ on all these versions, they convey the same message. In a shortened form, the clause simply connotes, love is not selfish. Selfishness is like a disease from the love dare that suffocates our capacity to love. When we choose self-centeredness, we become high-maintenance, more needy, overly sensitive, and demanding. And then when we don't get our way, we judge, judge others harshly while being blind to our own faults. Almost every sinful act can be traced back to a selfish motive. The bottom line is this. You either make decisions out of love out of love for others, or love for yourself. That's the bottom line. Love is not selfish. Imagine if Jesus would have been selfish. We'd be in big trouble. And so he modeled that love for us. And it's hard. Could it be that we stay stuck in certain patterns in our relationships because we're stuck on selfishness? I was listening to one of the uh, family programs, I think it was Family Life or Focus on the Family, and a gentleman was talking about a pornography addiction that he had for years, and he was a Christian, and he was very open with his wife about the pornography addiction. So he would fall to it, and he was falling regularly to it, and he would confess it to his wife, and he'd, he'd be tearful and broken, and he'd cry about it. And this went on for years, and he had a mentor, somebody who was discipling him, pouring into his life, 
And finally, one day, he said to his mentor, I fell again, and, I, uh, and he started blubbering. And his mentor looked at him and said, do you know why you keep falling to pornography? He said, yeah, I want to know. Tell me, why do I keep falling to pornography? He goes, because you love your sin. The man said that he was just wiped out by the comment. And then he started thinking about it, and he said, you're right, that's why I keep falling to pornography. Yes, I, he said, yes, you go through this repentance in quotes, and you cry, and you apologize to your wife, and you go through all that, but, but you go through all that for a false reason, because you love your sin, that's why you keep going back to it. Stop. And the man was confronted with the reality that he had elevated his sin above everything else. And then he did all the other accoutrements that a Christian would do, like be repentant. And I'm not saying those are wrong things, but he had done it in such a pattern for so many times that those very things became his excuse. And finally, a man called him on the carpet and said, you love your sin. That's your problem. And the man had to truly repent. Because he had elevated his sin above his God, above his wife. Love finds its satisfaction in the welfare of others. Love does not merely not seek that which does not belong to it. It is prepared to give up for the sake of others even what it's entitled to. It's my right! I should be able to do this! Yes, you should. But does that mean that you have to? Does that mean that you have to demand your right? This is a supposed true story from the time of Oliver Cromwell in England. A young soldier has been tried in military court, sentenced to death. He was to be shot at the ringing of the curfew bell. His fiancée climbed up the bell tower several hours before curfew time, tied herself to the bell's huge clapper. At curfew time, when only muted sounds came out of the bell tower, Cromwell demanded to know why the bell was not ringing. His soldiers went to investigate and found the young woman uh, cut and bleeding from being knocked back and forth against the great bell. They brought her down, and the story goes that Cromwell was so impressed with her willingness to suffer in this way on behalf of someone she loved that he dismissed the soldier saying, curfew shall not ring tonight. And Philippians 2 says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each one of you regard others as more important than yourself. Don't merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, we have these little bumper stickers, and maybe they're from days past. Attitude is everything. Yes, it is. And when I choose to love, I say to God, it's not about me anymore. It's about that other person. A cold wind was howling. A chilling rain was beating down when suddenly the telephone rang in the home of a doctor. The caller said, doctor, it's my wife. She needs urgent medical attention. The doctor was understanding. He said, I'll be glad to come, but my car is being repaired. He said, could you come and get me? There was an indignant voice on the other side of the phone, and the man angrily answered, What, in this weather? <laughs> Doc, can you come to my house? I don't mind if you drive your car in this inclement weather. Oh, you need me to pick you up? Oh, that's different. 
See, love will be inconvenienced. And if you're going to love in this way, you're going to be inconvenienced. I'm sure you've noticed. How many of you have just been trying a little bit more in the last couple of weeks? Come on. Anybody? None of you are even trying? Okay, Lord, I heard the characteristics of love. Okay, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be kind. And then <laughs> that driver in front of you, that person at work, your spouse. And all of a sudden, you're tested because love is patient and kind when situations call for being impatient and unkind. That's when you're going to need it. Love is not easily angered. Keep reading with me. We're going to try to get all the way down to verse 7. It is not provoked. Love, you could translate it this way, is not cantankerous. <laughs> Love, ESV, is not irritable. Oh. You ever had one of those weeks where just everything irritates you? You're like, that irritates me that person irritates me you irritate me and you're looking in the mirror <laughs> what's up with that irritable me my coffee i need an injection <laughs> of coffee it's a passive verb it means to be irritated or go into fits of anger how many of you have ever been in a store and you've watched a mom, she's got three kids, and one of the kids doesn't get the candy bar, and they're like, Now, I've heard stories like this. In fact, some of them were my children, but we won't go there. It was back in the day. And there's two reactions you can have. You can stand by and go, jeez, do something with that kid, would you please? Or you could say, hey, I, I understand. It's okay this kind of stuff happens, right? Because it's easy to be irritated until you're the person with the kid on the floor. And there's cameras in the store and you can't beat them publicly like you'd like to. <laughs> Can I get a witness? Yeah. Just wait. That's when the Italian vein comes out. Just wait till we get home. One writer says, love is hard to offend and quick to forgive. To be irritable means to make sharp or to sharpen. Literally, to be near the point of the knife. Not far from being poked, from the love dare. People who are irritable are locked and loaded and ready to overreact. They are easily carried away. Being easily ang angered is an indicator that a hidden, there's a hidden selfishness or insecurity that's present, where love is supposed to rule. What causes somebody to be irritable and cranky? It could be stress. It could be that you find yourself consistently uh, taking it out on others. But what should you do? Well, you might need some quiet time. You might, you might need to loosen up your schedule. You might need to build in some Sabbath. If you are irritable, others will surely back away from you. The solution is to be under the influence of love. When love enters your heart, it calms you down and inspires you to quit focusing on yourself. It loosens your grasp and helps you to let go of unnecessary things. It helps others around you not feel like they're walking on eggshells every time you enter the room or they enter a room that you're in. You do not want people that you love, folks, feeling like they're walking on eggshells around you. It's not right. 
that they don't know one thing, one little thing that they might say because you're already locked and loaded and you're all ready to go off. The Lord is compassionate and he's gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness. How about us? You guys have heard, heard when you're angry, you're supposed to count to 10 before you say anything. Anybody ever done that before? You get angry, one, two, three. One writer says it'll give you more time to come up with the right insult if you count to 10. <laughs> the Greek verb means to stir somebody to anger. Love doesn't walk around with a chip on its shoulder. It's not seething with red-hot temper, ready to release, be released when you push the wrong button. Here's John MacArthur. Telling our wives or husbands that we love them is not convincing if we continually get upset and angry at what they do and say. Telling our children that we love them is not convincing if we often yell at them for doing things that irritate us or interfere with our own plans. It does no good to protest. I lose my temper a lot, but it's all over in a few minutes. So, so is a nuclear bomb, says MacArthur. <laughs> a great deal of damage can be done in a very short time. Temper is always destructive. And even a small temper, small temper bombs can leave much hurt and damage, especially when they explode on a regular basis. Lovelessness is the cause of temper and love its only cure. Close quote. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. Outbursts of wrath are a fruit of the flesh. It's not hard to see which one's in control when we act this way. And love Notice, does not take into account, end of five, a wrong suffered. Now, we're going to move rather quickly here, but I'm going to spend a little time on this one. Love keeps no record of wrongs, NIV. Literally, love does not reckon the evil. Love, ESV, is not resentful. Now, listen to this. Take into account is a bookkeeping term that means to calculate or reckon, as when figuring an entry in a ledger. The purpose of the entry is to make a permanent record that can be consulted whenever needed. In business, that practice is necessary. But in personal matters, it is not only unnecessary, but it's harmful. Keeping track of things done against us is a sure way to unhappiness, our own and that of those who we keep records. The image of keeping records of wrongs with a view to paying back the injury is the picture. Paul uses the verb, in referring to God not counting our sins against us. Love does not take an inventory or keep a tally of wrongs suffer, suffered. It doesn't keep bringing them up over and over again. One writer describes this as a absolute forgetfulness, as if the marks of a stylish vanished from a wax tablet. In fact, earlier Paul says, as you guys are taking each other to court, why don't you just suffer the wrong instead? Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And sometimes I have to pray, Father, forgive me. I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew exactly what I was doing when I brought that thing up from five years ago. When I reached back into the bag of the old hurts and wounds. I said I had buried it, but I left the handle of the hatchet sticking out of the ground just in case. Right? Yes, I forgive you, but just in case, I'll keep a record. 
One writer tells of a tribe in Polynesia where it was customary for each man to keep some reminders of his hatred for others. These reminders were suspended from the roofs of their huts to keep alive the memory of the wrongs, real or imagined. Each time you walk by the thing hanging, oh yeah, that's right. Oh, one day they'll get theirs. Simply put, love forgives. Listen to this, this is important. Forgiveness does not dissolve anyone of blame or clear their record before God. It just clears you of having to worry about how to punish them. When you forgive another person, you're not declaring them innocent. You're just turning them over to God who can be counted on to deal with them in His way. You're saving yourself the trouble of scripting any more arguments or trying to prevail in the situation. It's about freedom. It's about letting go. Literally, the word forgive means to release it, let it go. It means to extend mercy and grace that you've been given. You forgive as the Lord forgave you. You don't reach into the record. You don't pull it out of the file. You don't call it up on your computer. You say, that's over. It's done. It's buried in the sea of forgetfulness. I'm not going to go there again. And you're going to have to fight the temptation to go there. Yeah, but in 2002, you remember when you took the last cookie? And you denied it, but there was a cookie crumb on your face. Right? But you said you forgave me of that. I did. Sort of. Right? If you, O Lord, kept a record of my sins, O Lord, who could stand? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. Aren't you glad that there's only one thought in verse 6? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness or wrongdoing. Love does not delight in evil, NIV. It rejoices with the truth. Quick story. My son was in his room, one of my sons, in high school, and there's a um, debate going on about gay marriage. And much of the class is just saying, it's okay, we should just let this go. And there's a debate going on on social media. And so uh, this, this gal, well-meaning gal, I know there's a, there's a lot of... Uh, questions that are arising around these things but so she quotes first corinthians 13 love is patient love is kind and in her debate of trying to defend gay marriage so one of my sons comes to me and says what do i do with this she's quoting the bible and i said tell her to keep reading because love does not rejoice in wrong it rejoices what in the truth if you have been sold the bill of goods from this culture, that everything that people do, we just have to love them. We just have to love. That's not a full definition of love. Love doesn't say to everybody, oh, you're okay, I'm okay, despite what the Bible clearly teaches. Love will say, no, it's wrong, and I will love you despite what you're going through and the struggle, but I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear when the Bible says the opposite. Anybody? This is where we're at today. Love cannot rejoice in wrong. It can't. Because it knows that the wrong is not good for that person. If you truly love that person, you'd be willing to risk maybe saying something uncomfortable to them because you truly love them. Enough with the nonsense that, oh, we just got to love everybody so we never tell anybody the truth. 
No, we speak the truth in love. I'm glad people spoke the truth in love to me in my life when I was off doing all the wrong things. Are you with me? There's a way to do it. But you don't just tell everybody they're okay when they're doing something destructive. That's not love. Love does not rejoice in wrong. But love will say, hey, I will walk with you. I will try to lead you to the right. I will help you. Yes, I've been there. I've made my own mistakes. But I will not suppress the truth to please the culture or be politically correct. That's not love. But love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. Love endures all things. NIV, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. If you have the NIV, notice the word always. It's panta. This is what love continually does. It doesn't say, I did this yesterday, so I'm good. Love is a lifestyle. It keeps going. It keeps protecting. It keeps trusting. It's not naive. It's not gullible. But it says, I'm going to hang in there with you. As long as you want me to, I will be here. Because God is its source. William Gladstone, a prime minister of England in the 19th century, one night was working late on an important speech he was to give in the House of Commons the next day. About two o'clock in the morning, a woman knocked on his door asking the servant if Mr. Gladstone would come and comfort a young crippled son who lay dying in his tenement not far away. Without hesitation, the busy man set his speech aside and went. He spent the rest of the night with the boy, comforting him and leading him to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The boy died about dawn. Gladstone returned home. He told a friend later this morning, I'm the happiest man in the world today. The true greatness of Gladstone was not in his political position or attainments, but in his great love. A love that would risk his political future to show the love of Christ to a young boy who was dying. As it turned out that morning, he also made what some historians claim was the greatest speech of his life. He gained that victory too because he had been willing to lose it for the sake of a greater victory that of love. I found the same truth in my life. Each time I've defaulted to love, even if I had a busy schedule, or I had to do this or that, or what about my sermon, or what about this, God's always given me what I needed to accomplish both. And many times I have failed. Many times my priorities haven't been heavens, but I'm a work in progress. I want to set aside petty things divisive things, things that mean very little or nothing. Those things must die. How much time have we wasted on those things, I ask you? They have to die. Love will choose the best. Final thought from the love dare. In the deep and private corridors of your heart, there's a room, it's called the appreciation room, The more time you spend meditating on these positive attributes about your spouse here, the more grateful you are for your mate, your friends, family, co-workers. Down another darker corridor of your heart lies the depreciation room. The more time you spend in this room, the more you devalue your spouse. The only reason you should glance in the door of the the depreciation room is to know how to pray for your spouse. You spend the, the... bulk of your time or all of your time in the appreciation room and finally for this sermon love never fails when defined this way how could it 
Love never gives up. Love never fails because God is love and he won't fail. He will continue to be patient with you and kind. Jesus said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I'm not going to give up on you. Some of you may feel like you want to give up on yourself. Or you want to give up on your spouse. Or you want to give up on this relationship or give up on that. And, And I would just say to you, don't quit. Don't quit on yourself. Don't quit on others. Ask God to help you with this kind of love. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and your patience. This section is probably one of the most challenging sections we will ever encounter. We've heard it at weddings. We've heard it in different contexts. But when we really break it down, it is probably the most challenging content of all. To love this way. Lord, we would all confess. I I would confess in my own life, I have failed so many times to love this way. Thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for your loving kindness. I would sense in a room like this, and those who may listen to this later, that there's probably some hurts and wounds and some deep self-reflection going on. And that can be healthy. The truth was not meant to entangle us. It was meant to set us free. And you want us to be a free people. Free to love as you love. Free to build others up. Free to make life about others and not about ourselves. And if we're feeling down and depressed, maybe the best remedy is for us to go do something kind for others and take our eyes off of ourselves. Lord, thank you for loving us unconditionally, loving us so perfectly. Next time we're together, we're going to look at a time when the perfect comes and all the garbage we deal with will be gone. The curse will be reversed. One day we will be able to love this way without the flesh, without sin, without the devil, without disease, without the fall, without the curse. That day is coming. Right now, you've called us to love in anticipation of that day. I'm going to ask you to keep your head and heart bowed If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you want to know His love for you. He does love you. He's always loved you. Would you open your heart to that love? Just say, Lord, I want to know your love. I turn from the false loves of the world, and I turn my life over to you. I repent of my sin. Pray it if it's you. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for dying on that cross. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you that you're going to make all things new one day. Change me from the inside out. If you're a Christian and you've been in a broken relationship, you have not loved the way you're supposed to, and you know it. But you want to lean into God right now and say, Lord, teach me to love. Restore, refresh, encourage. He will. It may not be easy, but he'll give you every resource you need. His grace upon grace upon grace. You can never exhaust it. All you got to do is just keep coming. So you may want to just pray as the Spirit leads you right now. And Father, for this wonderful congregation that I know wants to abound in love and grow in love, there's so much love in this room, but we could abound more. We could grow more in love. Help us. 
refresh us, encourage us, Lord, that this love is accessible. It's a power that we can never exhaust because it comes from you. Thank you for loving us first. We love because you first loved us, and we're so grateful for your everlasting love, which is better than life.